Something stalks the streets. Something possessed of animal cunning and fury. I understand you know something of the White Chapel murder. I have seen the man. I'm obliged to take you back to face the consequences of your acts. You take me back. How do you propose to do that by force? To leave reason for the job. We don't belong here. Why does he let them keep you? I don't know! Ninety years ago, I was a freak. Today, I'm an amateur. You throw me the key, and I'll release the girl. On your honor, John. You have my word as a gentleman. I would have expected that you'd notice by now that I am not a gentleman. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. At the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. We know you're bored. Come on, join it. We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an on-air shout-out and two bonus episodes every single month, uh, which we have been doing for over two years. I think we're approaching 60-some-odd bonus episodes, so if you haven't made the jump yet, definitely uh, uh, consider doing that, especially because since I wrote this intro that I read every week, uh, (laughs) we, we have also added bonus transmissions where we talk about new release genre movies, which we've been doing basically every two weeks since yeah. we did quarantine out of boredom. <laughs> yeah, lots uh, of time on our hands. So, Yeah, uh, and and also uh, we recently started for the $10 patrons the uh, uh, monthly screening, which I'm deciding on at the moment right now what it's going to be at, for the end of this month. Oh, cool. Uh, where we do an online viewing party, but I'm thinking about doing Stone Cold from 1991 with... Uh, with with the boss uh mr bossworth the uh the nfl player turned action star briefly in the early 90s oh hell yeah that's that sounds awesome we did uh extra last time right yeah we did extra last month which was which was really fun (laughs) what a trip um but uh speaking of which uh we do have a bunch of um patrons to thank uh this week Pulling open the list here because it actually is like incredibly long. I actually had to like write write this down. That's awesome. So normally, no, normally we spend a little bit more time going through uh, the names, but today I got to kind of rip through them. Um, so thank you to Mark Power, C W W, Andrew Barber, uh, Tony Scott fan one who was already oh, a nice. patron, but yeah. but who bumped up to the ten dollar tier. Oh, so cool. uh, he's going to be joining us for the. Uh, next screening that's coming up well thank uh, we you also mr have, scott fan <laughs> we have martin worrell uh chris freeberg uh kim spencer uh jared uh gores uh jared is actually a longtime mutual nice to see him uh signing up here cool uh he's a very good writer he's fun fun to follow uh we also have uh kevin uh quinn dobbs uh andrew levine uh Paul Ma and I think we got one more here Lucas Potter the 7th <laughs> nice so a long reign Lucas Potter yes very awesome 7th <laughs> um so thanks uh, to all you guys for signing up uh this week and getting all those bonus episodes hope you are enjoying that we have lots coming for you yes um 
But uh, that's the one plug for the week. The other plug, as always, is um, Apple Podcasts. If you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts, and I know that a bunch of you are, I see the stats every week. Uh, scroll down to the bottom there and give us a good old rating and review. Uh, helps us uh, cr- climb the ranks over at iTunes and find new listeners. So we appreciate that as well. Very much. Uh, but those are the two plugs. As always, I am your host, uh, Josh Lewis. And joining me also, as al- always, is my co-host. Jamie Miller. Welcome back, guys. Welcome back. Uh, two weeks ago, I think, would have been the last time uh, you all, free listeners, would have heard from us. And uh, we would have had the uh, duo over at Podside Picnic, Connor and Pete, yeah. the uh, sci-fi podcast that they do over there. And they brought with them two very different science fiction dystopia films, uh, the seminal action sci-fi classic Aliens by James Cameron from uh, 1986, but also uh, Jean-Pierre Junot's Delicatessen from 1991. Yeah. Um, so two very different uh, visions of what a futuristic sci-fi dystopia looks like, but both very fun to talk about. If you haven't heard that episode, uh, that was uh, two weeks ago, um, available on any podcast listener of choice. Uh, but last week, continuing on our science fiction journey, over on Patreon for the bonus listeners, we did finally Paul Verhoeven's Total Recall. Um, oh yeah, from 1990. We've been doing some heavy hit hitters lately, considering it took us two years to hit some of these. Yeah, for real. Sort of more canon ones like Texas Chainsaw as well. But we did Total Recall, um, which is one hell of a movie. You probably don't need to be told that. Um, <laughs> but we paired it with uh, Stuart Gordon's sort of 1992 cheap knockoff of uh, a Verhoeven RoboCop slash Total Recall situation. His movie called Fortress, which starred yeah. Christopher Lambert and Kurtwood myth and was uh for how much it cost pretty good <laughs> yeah solid and uh uh if, correct me if i'm wrong we had combs in there too right yeah combs was in there as well and he was excellent playing that like greasy nerdy kind of guy <laughs> yeah that was fun <laughs> yeah so if, if you if you want to see kurtwood smith as a horny cyborg <laughs> and all kinds of strange futuristic um sci-fi almost comedy because it's Stuart Gordon. Oh, yeah. He always finds an absurdity uh, to put in there as yeah. well as body horror. There's a device in that film called the intestinator that blows out <laughs> pris- prison's guts. If they start misbehaving. That's so, such an awesome name, the intestinator <laughs> fun times. So again, uh, patreon.com slash these podcast. If you want access to that episode, that was last week's bonus episode, but this week moving on here, we have brought on a very special guest here. She is uh, the uh, a freelance critic for uh, places such as Film Comment, which RIP for the moment. I am a Film Comment subscriber, so I have uh, read read her work before. And unfortunately, due to the current situation, as you guys can probably hear. Uh, we are still in the quarantine zone. Everyone is still in the quarantine zone. <laughs> yeah. So we are recording remotely and places, uh, physical magazines and stuff are having a hard time right now. So film comment is kind of taking a hiatus. But before it did that, our special guest today was a uh, freelance critic for them as well as others. And uh, that is uh, Fung Le. Fung, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? That's oh, pretty good. I, yeah, the pronunciation. I'm really, okay. I'm really impressed. 
That's okay. That's that's I'm good because I I was I, I got a little uh, I, I wasn't as confident, but you know, uh, you did a little did... pause there. You hesitant for a little bit, but then you you know you move on. It's good. Yeah, as 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 is historical on the show, I always get scared with with uh, with, with name pronunciation, and uh, I'm I'm always terrified of the comments being like, "You spent a whole episode getting this name wrong," uh, which I I've like, done though. before. I like I like like inspiring fear in people with my name. <laughs> people, people, you wouldn't believe the angry messages that we got when uh, we. What was the the writer, uh, Mamet? I think I, th- I think we spent a whole episode oh. calling him David Mamey or something like that. Oh, it was bad. So French. That's very yeah. French. <laughs> Give him yeah, some culture. Not, yeah, not great. Not great. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Fung, what um, as as it goes on this show, we have the guests bring on the two films with them. So, uh, what two films have you brought with you this week, and why did they pair together? Um, so um, we're going to talk about Motor by Decree. And uh, directed by Bob Clark, and uh, Time After Time, directed by Nicholas Mayer. And they both came out in 1979, and they both deal with Jack the Ripper. But besides that sort of like obvious connection, I'm interested in how they both have this atmosphere of um, fear and paranoia, which is very, very 1970s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's very interesting to me. That that I found particularly interesting about Murder by Decree because I've I've you know uh, you're probably going to have to lead us through some of these because um, I'm not the most familiar with the history of Sherlock Holmes's um, like the 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 writing in the films. I've seen a couple of them. I've seen enough to be able to tell like that Murder by Decree was definitely like a like a late version. But it was interesting to see mm-hmm. a Sherlock Holmes story, something set in Victorian England that had that very Watergate era style corruption paranoia. Not yeah. really. I think it's just Bob Clark. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just how he wrote. Because he made he actually made what I consider to be sort of the best Vietnam War movie, which is um Death Dream. Death Dream is fantastic. Also called, it's so good. It's also yeah. called Death of Night or something. It has a bunch of names. Yeah. And, um, and it's had that same sort of atmosphere of paranoia and sort of distrust mm. in the government. Um, and I think it's just on Bob Clark. Because there's not really a yeah. Sherlock Holmes um, story yeah, that directly no, reject the Ripper. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that, that's what I mean. Because like it's it's yeah. not like uh, compared to other Sherlock stuff I've seen like that, it doesn't fit. The tone is so completely different in in that particular way. So you're, you're right that that's definitely a 70s filmmaker taking the material and bending yeah. it to his own interests, which is just very interesting. Yeah, um, and I feel like it's transitional in a way as well. But in many ways, it's still like a classical kind of film. It's still very old school with the set. Yeah, because like mm-hmm. the costumes and everything, but but the way the camera works is very sort of new wave seventies with all the point of view shots, you know, and the killings and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's a weird sort of transitional kind of film. Yeah, and 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 same for um, time after time, which which is definitely both of these films coming out in the same year, both dealing yeah. with Jack the Ripper and both dealing with sort of. Uh, the the sort of Victorian era ideas coming into the yeah. the late seventies present um, both have um, very interesting ideas about uh, sort of the current wave of, of of fear and paranoia as as you've said uh, politically mm-hmm. sort of um, getting getting its way into the material psychologically in certain ways though time after time is a little bit more um, fun and and goofy yeah. in that yeah. way. Um, it's it's like being, a romantic comedy. 
Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It's very cute. <laughs> Uh, but that being said, I think we're going to jump right into it here. So we are going to jump into it here with, uh, we usually start with the more popular of the two films first, sort okay. of like A picture, B picture, like mm-hmm. you would at a drive-in. Uh, so we are going to talk about first uh, Time After Time. HG, it's checkmate and you've lost again. A romantic adventure, a breathless chase around the world and across a century. Time after time. All right, so we are talking time after time. The 1979 uh, American uh, science fiction comedy film, um, also sort of horror, also sort of romance all at the same time. It's a very yeah. big genre bender, um, but it's directed by uh, screenwriter uh, Nicholas. Uh, did you say Mayer? I, I would have said Mayer the whole Meyer? time. Meyer, sorry. I have no I'm idea. Sure. Well, so sure. That's all good. I'm just going to call him Nick. It's, it's probably Meyer. Oh, he's, he's our friend. It's just Nick. <laughs> yeah. From the we'll movies. just call him Nick. <laughs> Uh, but the film stars uh, Malcolm McDowell, David Warner, and uh, Mary Steenburgen. Um, and the plot, as is fitting of the the tagline, which is H.G. Wells races through time to catch Jack the Ripper. That is as literal of a tagline as as you could get. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the, the film begins in uh, London, 1893, which is home to the uh, notorious unsolved uh, serial killer, Jack the Ripper, which has all kinds of uh, still historical sub- subjects, but has sort of taken on an almost folklorish history aspect as time has passed, um, who uh, very viciously uh, cut open um, prostitutes in the uh, 19th century. But it's also about a, another historical figure who existed uh, around the same time, H.G. Wells, who is someone we've talked about on this sh- show before. Um, right. Because uh, we did uh, The Invisible Man not too long mm. ago, the original Invisible Man, which he wrote the original story for. Thank you. Um, and uh, he also wrote such science fiction stories, though, as The Island of Dr. Moreau, uh, The Time Machine, which is a very important one uh, <laughs> for where this story goes, and also, obviously, very famously, War of the Worlds. Um, and uh, Malcolm McDowell plays H.G. Wells, um, who uh, was a very uh, vocal uh socialist and also had a lot of political and social critique into his sort of futuristic um, science fiction work that often uh, either depicted dystopia situations in a critical uh, eye or he sometimes later in his career when he sort of moved away from science fiction and became just kind of a political writer almost (laughs) he he just wrote about uh, his his ideas for a utopia which this film takes as its subject um, because he was this sort of futurist writer and he foresaw, you know, the uh, advent of things such as uh, air travel, space travel, uh, nuclear weaponry, um, satellite television, just about everything that you can imagine. Um, 
he he also envisioned things that would become staples like alien uh, invasion, obviously invisibility with the invisible man, yeah. biological engineering, and how mm-hmm. that fits into sort of a military industrial complex. Very uh, ahead of his writer, or ahead of his time style writer. Um, and that is actually the exact subject of this film. Um, yeah. Which is a guy who goes to the future, imagining that you know by 1979 we'll have figured all of our shit out. Uh, but spoiler alert, and we did. Maybe we haven't. No, <laughs> yeah, we're perfect. Um, but yes, he he uses uh, his own time machine that he supposedly invented just for his story. And instead, this movie imagines what if he actually invented it in real life, and then Jack the Ripper being. <laughs> a kind of snarky guy who decided to use the time machine to escape. And Jack, that ripper, man, just such a oh, sneaky Jack. motherfucker. Oh, oh. <laughs> David Warner was so good. Oh yeah. Yeah. I honestly, I thought, I brilliant. thought the performances uh, overall were what kind of largely sold this film for me. I mean, I think yeah. Nicholas Myers is a clever writer. He obviously came from a background of writing literal Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Uh, yeah stories he uh what's what's the really famous one that he did the seven percent um the seven percent solution yes correct which came out in 1976 i think and actually deal with Sherlock Holmes drug addiction and a lot of yeah, the reviews actually yeah and a lot of the, I, I read the reviews for time at the time and a lot of them actually compare it to um the seven percent solution as well as murder by decree so they already sort of draw Home and Jack the Ripper, even though the film really really doesn't deal with it, it's interesting. Hmm, pretty cool. I also yeah, well, because 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 you can you can kind of tell just on the overall structure that like this is a guy coming from the point of view of a detective mystery writer that yeah. even, even though it is kind of like a a, a science fiction. Sometimes that bleeds in, into horror as Jack the Ripper's kills actually are kind of um, nasty in certain ways. Yeah, like like the the opening. Uh, yeah, they get worse as where, the movie goes. Yeah, like but it, but it's all it, the opening murder with like the foggy cobblestone yeah. like lamplit POV shots as he's like you know walking up behind a woman and then she actually like uh, he actually plays like this music from a pocket watch to kind of like lull mm. her before he like guts her. And there is a POV shot of her like yes. gutted. Um, and there's a sound effect when she's being gutted. That's like yeah. being zipped open or something, which is absolutely creepy. But it's interesting that both Motor by Decree and Time of the Time, when they do um, the murders, they both kind of shot the same way, like a POV kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I have it's a feeling just, it's that... It's almost that, identical. For sure. Yeah, I have a feeling that Bob Clark... Uh, because we, we've actually talked about Bob Clark before we did um, not too long ago, we did black Christmas. Yeah. Um, and obviously black Christmas is one uh, the home of some of the earliest POV um, horror sequencing um, that, that was done. And that's what I was reminded of uh, sure. watching what they were doing in time after time. Cause I watched mm-hmm. it first and then I watched murder by decree. And uh, I was like, Holy crap. Bob Clark literally repeated the exact same wide angle POV lensing. Uh, and, but he also incorporated the breathing, which was a huge part of what was doing in in black Christmas as well. So it was interesting to see both of these films sort of using Jack the Ripper as a POV stalker. I guess that was a, I mean, to be fair, also, this is the same year that, um, Halloween came out, correct? Yeah, I was about to say. Which would have been the ultimate POV. (laughs) I also like murder sequence. (laughs) 
I also like the differences between them. Like with uh, with Bob Clark's, it's very much more of a uh, like a traditional kind of frothing at the mouth kind of serial killer, the mm-hmm. heavy breathing. Whereas whereas yes. with Time After Time, you know, David Warner gives that like very classic gentleman. I'm here to uh, you know be suave and whatever, and then I murder you in the alleyway. Um, yeah. And and I found that interesting too, and, I, and it's very effective. Uh, they even do like uh, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's a one shot uh, when it's introducing David Warner off camera, and you only see his hand the whole time. And I thought yes. that was effective as well. Like on gloves, is this very? Yeah. He's a very sort of aristocratic right. serial killer. He has a kind of like boredom around him. Because whenever, whenever H.G. Wells like showed up and like, oh, I'm gonna stop you from murdering people, it's like, oh, I'll see you again. Yeah. Just, wanna, <laughs> just, just let me go kill people. Yeah. And <laughs> he just, it's like this profound boredom about his character that makes him so much more sleazy and evil in a way. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, well, and, and it's also interesting because it's uh, like he he sounds just like H.G. Wells. Like he fit in mm. at a dinner party with them, right? right. And that like shocks yeah. them. Yeah. Just like, you mean there's a surgeon who was at our dinner party who was Jack the Ripper? And they're all like, my God, I can't believe such a thing. Uh, (laughs) My Lord. uh, Which, by the way, a funny note about Malcolm McDowell's uh, voice that I read was that Malcolm McDowell uh, accepted this role as H.G. Wells because he was very excited because of the lightness of the material. Oh, yes. um, because apparently he had just come off Caligula, which I still haven't seen, but is notorious notorious for being a full out like uh pornographic yeah uh, and super violent that was something uh, uh i was gonna mention was just like malcolm is so lovable and innocent in this and so i'm cute. used right exactly and i'm so used to him from like you know clockwork orange and, and yes. things like that so to see uh to see him be so just human and uh, and loving and caring was <laughs> yes. was very very just nice and romantic. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's very... funny to think. Yeah. Sorry. As no, I, go it's ahead. funny. It's funny to think of him just being like, "Oh, I'm just gonna take some light serial killer material. Like I'm <laughs> done with the porn thing. I'm just gonna yeah. go with some slight murdering prostitutes." That's yeah. what I'm doing. Time traveling, uh, Jack the Ripper. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but but one notable thing about his performance was that he was very excited to take on H.G. Wells. He liked H.G. Wells as a writer, and he actually did research, and he was really hoping to get into like H.G. who H.G. Wells really was. And he looked up all this all this old footage he could find of him, and found out that H.G. Wells has the most horrifyingly squeaky <laughs> voice that any man could possibly have. And he was and and McDowell was was horrified apparently when he found out. So instead, he was just like, "Instead, I'm just going to adhere to the more sort of, uh, I guess they would call it a a proper." Uh, like a posh British speaking voice. Yes, exactly. As, as much as that was probably a good move for his career, I do think that I would have preferred him to go for the voice. <laughs> as much as Imagine I love him, him in just this. like wooing Mary Steenburgen <laughs> with like a squeaky Cockney voice. It'd be That'd awesome. Be, with the glasses and everything. It'd be hilarious. Oh my God. We need an alternate version where that does happen. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> he has some time in quarantine. He, he can do it like a daft version for us. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the the thing that stood out to me about um, time after time in particular is just for for Meyer, who, from what I understand, 
Um, he had he had done some screenwriting before, but this is his directorial debut, correct? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Oh wow, it's it it's pretty impressively made for a yeah. guy who's never made um, a film before. And I yeah. understand he was nominated for an Oscar for screenwriting for the adaptation of his own book. Yeah. Um, the Sherlock Holmes story that we mentioned at the top of the show that wrestles with Sherlock Holmes's drug addiction, which does sound really interesting. And I want to read that and maybe check out that movie now. Um, he meets Freud is between Sherlock Holmes and Freud. So it's oh. another thing, like a sort of, sort of like a mix between people whom you think that would never mix together. That's, That's so great because, so because, because, yeah, because that was honestly something that like, I thought was maybe missing a little bit in Murder by Decree. Because I, I remember <laughs> seeing uh, the few home stories that I've seen, and he always has like a self destructive, like yeah. drug addiction quality to him that uh, you yeah. don't see as much in in Plummer's version of the character in that one. No. So it's so it's interesting that Meyer doing this film is is famous for maybe the one that most confronted his drug addiction. Yeah, it's bizarre. I think the plot, I haven't seen it, but, but the plot is something like um, Sherlock Holmes having this um, analyst, like analyzing session with Freud. And then through talking about his traumas in his past, he's continued to solve murder. It's absolutely bizarre. We sort of make time after time make sense. It's like, it's why you rehab time after time because that's the way he thinks. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it is, it does come from a very sort of like clever writerly um, yeah. per perspective, like as, as far you can tell that that is where sort of Nicholas Meyer uh, ha- has the most fun in, in, in writing some of the dialogue and writing some of the uh, like, this is a very heavily plotted film. And mm. I was, I was quite surprised because is this one of the earliest um, time travel films to like use it in a modern way that we think about time travel, like the way yeah. that it would eventually be used in things like Back to the Future or Terminator or something like Bill and Ted, even where like sort of like the mechanics uh, and logistics of how they travel and the sort of like the fish out of water aspect was yeah. was done so thoroughly because like obviously previously there was things like Planet of the Apes in the sixties which did. Uh, time travel but time travel was like a thing that was revealed at the end of that movie and even in later sequels it would always involve like time travel has already happened at the beginning of the film sometime and now we're already here this is one where we actually start off in sort of like the victorian era and it gets you into like that 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 mood and the way that these characters like speak to one another and it firmly plants you with hg wells's time and and his history before taking you to the modern era where he starts hanging out uh, with, with Mary Steenberger uh, and going to McDonald's and looking at <laughs> plastic <laughs> chairs and being like, this is a strange kind of wood I've never seen before. Loves those fries. Uh, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> Pum frites. <laughs> Pum frites. I love the bit when he was mimicking the guy who ordering before him so that he knows how to order. Oh, yeah. a, a big coke or something and he's like could i have tea please like i'm time traveling you're not having coke yeah he even does like an like a american accent at first to, to yes. try to order the burger and everything and then yes. as soon as tea comes out he's like oh tea please my bad tea please <laughs> yeah i mean i i even think Adorable. visually he did a pretty good job too with the uh the psychedelic time travel sequence like with all the yes. colors and lighting yeah, and it was like, like the reverse negative and kind of a superimposed compositions like a cheaper 2001 sequence it was really awesome <laughs> that's, yeah. yeah that's kind of what he's it was literally, like. <laughs> literally going on a trip yeah because like he's going to san francisco and he's literally going on like a psychedelic trip yeah to absolutely. Get there. yeah yeah 
and, and I love how horrified he is uh, because like at first he's really excited when he realizes he's in the future. I mean, as far as a character realizing that they've gone, traveled all the way to 1979. He's stoked. Yeah. He handles it very well. <laughs> yeah. Because he was always thinking ahead to the future. So when he first sees like planes and stuff, he's like amazing. And he's like, right. Taking out his notepad and yeah. like, notes about it and then he sees obviously he was also part of the uh early theorists about the sexual revolution and stuff like that so he was very excited that like there was like pornography uh on sale like right next to the newspapers or whatever. <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah i also so, love so, when he's trying to open the taxi the taxi door and he just can't quite figure it out and i don't he's got like malcolm puts on this really nice physical performance as well where he's always yes. upright you know standing he's got his hands behind his back he's always observing and all that so to watch him kind of cl- be clumsily stumble with just very modern technology is uh it, it is adorable <laughs> It's so adorable. His body language is amazing. Yeah. And I think what makes this movie so great as well is because there's a lot of running. There's a lot of um, um, Malcolm McDowell chasing David Warner on right. around San Francisco. And they're both tall men with long, lanky legs. And it's <laughs> yeah. just amazing to see like those like legs running on over San Francisco. Especially it's in like very, old Victorian suits. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and I, I I particularly like seeing David Warner here because I always think of David Warner as ominous henchman number one from Titanic. <laughs> so so seeing him as Jack the Ripper like actually made perfect sense for me. Uh, yeah, he's pretty which, good. <laughs> he's got a charm. Uh, and I to also him. really like I I like how he gets to sort of counteract Malcolm uh, McDowell's H.G. Wells, who obviously you know Jack the Ripper gets to the future, and you know it's 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 a little writerly and on the nose. Yeah. But there is there is a really nice moment where they both are are seated and they finally both confront each other now, sort of hanging out in the seventies San Francisco, which is such an uh, an aesthetic difference. Mm. Um, oh yeah, and it kind of reminded me like what if classical British writers were hanging out in like a Dirty Harry movie or something like that that's kind of like what <laughs> this film ended up feeling like for me and it makes perfect sense with Jack the Ripper because Jack the Ripper is like who belongs more in a Dirty Harry film <laughs> me <laughs> or you and yeah. at a certain point I was like you know what Jack the Ripper actually does make a lot more sense he, he would just be another scorpion that uh, Clint Eastwood would come and try to blast away um, and there's even like while Malcolm McDowell has his subplot where he is sort of getting into a romantic relationship with like a um, sort of modern progressive 20th century uh, working woman. Uh, there's stuff where like they're getting into having, having going on dates and having a nice time and having this sort of fish out of water comedy romance type scenario. And in the background, you will just see like a newspaper yeah. where it's like another prostitute has been murdered on the, on the streets or whatever. And like, when you think about it in the Victorian era, that was, it was like a huge scandal and everyone was out on the streets and everyone was freaking out. There was this huge fear and paranoia about Jack the Ripper and right. then Jack, Jack the Ripper operating in modern times. It's just like, uh, you know, one newspaper headline and they're like, there you go. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Like they, they no even, one else is paying attention to it anymore. They, they even mention it. And I think it's murder by decree that there's a scene where, you know, a, uh, someone threatens to, to start a riot just by saying, you know, Jack the Ripper was here or something mm. like that, which just kind of shows that that's where the community was, right. They were just more tight knit and things had to kind of be, uh, communicating that way whereas here just like you said if that were to happen you know maybe five people around them would just kind of you know take take their distance but that's the most that would really happen they just go about with their day 
They're going to go home and watch TV after they're done their date. Right, exactly, exactly. (laughs) I think that shows a lot in the costuming as well because Edgy Wow is pretty much dressed the same way throughout the whole movie. Yeah. But Jack the Ripper, he's just at home. He's like, this is my new home now. There's violence everywhere. I feel completely at ease. So he just go shopping and and dress the time. He's feel completely at ease. (laughs) That's that great moment when came to see Mary Steen Brogan at the bank again to exchange money. And that great shots of her looking up and then cut to like the, his denim pants and then it tilts up to like a denim vest over a black turtleneck. And the oh, whole yeah. outfit is just like the most 1970s thing <laughs> ever. <laughs> Jack 100%. the Ripper in a full-on denim outfit. And then he go to the discotheque. Like you have Jack the Ripper at the discotheque like dancing and it's just that's just a great visual gag. <laughs> <in general. laughs> I, I also really liked uh, Mary taking H.G. Wells to go see Exorcist 4, which is yes. just not even a real movie. They just uh, they were imagining a world where they made a fourth Exorcist by 1979. <laughs> <laughs> and he can't even handle it. Like he's hiding behind the uh, the seats. That's the, that's best the first part. time people see a movie because I just yep. realized because the first film, like the first film projection is 1895 and yep, he traveled he from, 19, from 1893. So we've never seen a movie before. So amazing. And, and speaking on the uh, the date too, I like that. Uh, I think it's near the end, but he's he's he knows of all, all his fiction works, uh, but he doesn't quite know mm. if they're fiction or not because he's looking at them in a museum. So it's like War of the Worlds, The Invisible Man, and he's and he looks <laughs> at them and he says uh, something along fiction the lines of Yeah, <laughs> he's like, man, I hope these are fiction books that I'm writing here because like, <laughs> yeah. what the hell happened in the last five years? <laughs> you know, uh, and I thought that yeah. was hilarious. Really good piece of writing yeah. there. No, yeah, there's there's some really good um, jokes in this that like really take advantage of the absurd premise, which the movie itself uh, seems to know is pretty absurd because there's there's like these great moments where like H.G. Wells keeps saying out loud like what's actually happening. And yeah, <laughs> where, where where he's like, I have traveled through time. Jack the Ripper is here. I am hunting Jack the Ripper through time and <laughs> there's just like the the woman who's at the police station just like writing up what the guy is saying and she's yeah. just like I, got this I blank expression i love the typing just like <laughs> typing typing it's like oh my god what's happening yeah it's, it's, it's sort of it feels like it shouldn't work it's sort of like the ultimate high concept movie it's like itchy well hunting jack the ripper to time but the writing <laughs> the writing is so good that it actually and yeah. I really love I really love Mary Steinberger Bergen character in this because she just basically hunts after Itchy Wells from the yeah. first moment they meet. She's yeah. like, oh, like this is my number. Like yeah, you can ask assertive. me out to lunch, and she just like go after him. And I love I love her just her character, and she delivers it with such a like an honesty and just a very yeah. genuine person. Uh, and she often does that. Every time I've seen Mary Steenburgen, she she does that a lot, and she's, she's very, very good at it. Yeah, she's just a very yeah. sweet actress. Um, and she got to do uh, some really interesting interesting things here with that. So yeah, she was she was great. She's yeah, great. and 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 I mean even um, too because obviously they have like she finds you know even when H. G. Wells is obviously he he's out of time and he's not really. You know, he he can't really hold necessarily a proper conversation about modern things. She finds that just very, like, uh, sort of, like, earnest about him. She, yeah. she finds him very, like, adorable in that way. And then when he involves her, um, there's this there's this nice quality where, like, you know, he was like, you would not believe me if I told you. And then she 
admits that, you know, she likes him so much that that she would, she trusts him. Um, and then he actually does reveal it. And at first she obviously rejects it because it's so absurd because the entire yeah. concept of the movie is just so absurd. But then he reminds her, he's just like, you know, you, you said you would believe me. And then she <laughs> she just chooses to believe him, even though she actually sort of doesn't. Oh, doesn't and it's yeah. just it's and at the end, it's just a really nice character moment where like she makes the conscious choice to be like, I like this person enough that I will go to crazy town uh, with them, <laughs> even if I don't necessarily believe it. And then obviously that leads into, you know, some really awesome um, time travel sequencing where like he actually takes her like three days into the future and yes. she sees her own murder in the headlines. Yeah. <laughs> and then they decide to use that information to like go back and like prevent her murder. It actually gets really complicated, which is what I mean when I say it that does. like, it's- I don't think there was a previous movie that you use time travel uh, in this particular way, which is kind of how we would know, you know, if anyone made a time travel movie now, this is how you would have to do it. Right. You would have to address like characters manipulating the structure of the story itself in, in a way to, and, and, you know, weaponizing information that is given to them, you know, based on where they're going. And so like that kind of stuff, I don't think was previously done, at least in a movie earlier that I've seen. Uh, maybe we'll have some uh, listeners out there who can point us to one that did it before this. But um, for now, I'm going to be crediting Meyer on just like really clever writing to come up with, uh, you know, <laughs> using it, um, using time travel uh, into his plotting like so thoroughly here and to do so while not losing track of the character work that he's doing. Yeah. yeah. And speaking on uh, like even the, the Jack the Ripper killings, something I found interesting was at first they're not all like, they're not very violent. Like the one he, it, now they imply a lot of violence. Don't get me wrong. It's just what I'm saying is yeah. they don't visually show it at first. So at first it's like their one is that he grabs the girl and then it seems like he, he might uh, cut her throat, but it cuts. And then it just does this little uh, blood gag where just the smallest amount of blood goes on to hits his face. Hits yeah. his face. Yeah. And it's very, very small. And I thought that they were doing that like on purpose. We're like, okay, it's just not going to be a very uh, violent movie in the sense of the visuals. But as it goes, the, the, the mm. deaths get crazier because then it turned the next one I think is like, Someone is hung from a bridge, and then there's another one where you see a severed arm. So it like it starts to get more and more uh, almost dangerous as the film goes, and yeah. I feel like it starts to make H.G. Wells kind of, you know, get tighter and tighter uh, within the case. Like he just feels like there's there's less time, you know. Uh, uh, he's he's letting loose more, and it's yeah, becoming no, more I dangerous. De- I definitely yeah. think you're right. There's a purposeful structure to get the violence more extreme. Yeah, because at first I thought progresses. it was kind of laughable, to be honest. Like just from what we've seen on the show and stuff, I'm like this little bit of blood on his face after he did that. <laughs> I was like, this, this seems odd, but then it just progresses, and I think it is kind of on purpose. Yeah, yeah. no, it, it, I, it definitely gets more extreme. And I think it's also might be a commentary on. I think at one point. Um, Jack the Ripper said to H.G. Wells that violence is catching, is like a disease. Uh, and the yeah. environment, the environment that they're in with, you, like the cons- we constantly hear things from the TV or the radio talking about all the violence that's going on, kidnapping and then um, senators getting assassinated and everything. And it's, it's, I wonder if that is sort of a commentary on how the environment of 1970s sort of enhanced the brutal yeah, yeah. No, because 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 you you definitely feel like Jack Dripper again. He feels more at home in this context than he did in his own previous time. Right. So you can yeah. feel like that maybe he he's even getting more gruesome because he's like, you know, what the time calls for me. 
to get more yeah, gruesome. More inventive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Also, uh, yeah. I just, this, is a, this is a random note, but um, absolutely hilarious that Co- Corey Feldman makes a two-second appearance in this in the mall. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I missed it. Oh, yeah, really? dude. When uh, when H.G. Wells wakes up in the mall, or I guess it's not the mall, it's the museum of H.G. Wells. Um, mm. uh, it, it's Corey the Feldman kids? is the kid that, that oh, sees God. him. Yeah, hilarious. Yeah. Everyone who's seen this movie. Yeah. I think it must have been like one of his first cameos or something, but yeah, very funny. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, I think we should, uh, we're we're just about at the, the, the climax uh, of the film here, which again, again, messes with the, the time travel thing because one, they use that information about her murder that they get from the newspaper three days later when they go back to try to fix it. And then they realize that they were actually messing with time over false information because H.G. Wells, I guess, for whatever reason, is didn't read the whole thing correctly. <laughs> and because they, they saw that there was a murder in her apartment, they just and immediately he assumed it was murder. Yeah. Uh, but, but it turns out that uh, he actually killed her best friend who was in her apartment. And she's the girl who gets like the, the yeah. severed arm and the, the blood all over the walls in her apartment. Um and uh, it basically leads to him taking um, uh, Jack the Ripper, kidnapping Mary, obviously. But H.G. Uh, Wells does like this really big plea for that. Like, you know, he he really cares for Mary and he will like give him the key to the time machine and everything because they set up really early in the plot that like the time machine, I guess, always returns back home unless you have like this key that like allows you to custom manipulate with it which is just meant obviously for hg wells and then they also set up that there's what do they call this thing that sits on the i don't know why it sits on the outside it's It's like an extra key yeah yeah it's it's like a bigger key yeah it's called i think they call it a vaporizing equalizer or something like that which i guess is just it is it it is just the device that makes sure that the 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 time all doesn't uh, kill you i guess well, no, so that it, it, it like stays uh, coherent or it stays yeah. uh, stabilized, I guess. Oh, okay. So that if you if, if you pull it out. So that um, you don't get what Ripper gets? <laughs> yes, which is science. Uh, he, he gets basically <laughs> lost into some sort of time infinity yeah. psychedelia. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's like an anchor. Like if you think of like a time machine as a ship or something, it's like an anchor yeah. to keep yeah. you in specific time period but if you you pull it away you're sort of just tram traveling your entire life and not staying in one place i really like, like the uh i really like the effect too i mean it's obviously dated at this point but just to have him turn into this like this like psychedelic blob and then disappear was was kind of cool so you know there, there's yeah some, no i there's some effects that obviously are dated but uh they're still very um visually pleasing and exciting yeah, yeah, and I, again, especially for a first-time director, I was I was quite surprised to learn that he hadn't directed anything before because I was like, this is you know I wouldn't say it's the most visually you know wild thing I've seen or anything, but no. like it's just it, it it's it's very competent for a guy who's very clearly coming at this from from a writer's point of view, and I've seen a lot of writers who make the way to directing and they just have no idea what to do with the camera, yeah. right? And some of them even worse don't even know how to direct performances. That right. They know how to write characters, but they don't know how to like get a natural performance out of out of actors. That's and I something think that he he definitely did here for sure. Yeah, 
Well, I mean, it, it also helps that two of the characters are people who make absolute sense in like a Victorian era writing <laughs> yeah. context. Like 100%. they don't have to have the most natural performances, but but Mary on on the for example ha- has a like a a very natural um, performance uh, yeah, to her, and lovable. the way that she gets to like push H.G. Uh, Wells and the way that they actually sort of like you know, they actually do spark a genuine romance. Uh, and yeah. I, w- I will say that like, as we pivot towards the reductive rating round, um, which is where we reduce the the film between a number between one and five, but it's also become kind of like closing statements and yeah. uh, any scenes that we didn't get to hit that you, um, you wanted to hit a- as we pivot towards that. The thing that I think really ended up selling me um, on this was actually the romantic angle, which I was surprised to find myself mm-hmm. actually kind of like, caring about a little bit by the time they hit the end of it. Um, like when Jack the Ripper having gruesomely killed a bunch of people at this point, his danger has been sort of established and he's threatening Mary. I'm sitting there going, guy, no man. Yeah. That's do Mary. Not. No. Don't, don't, don't do it, man. And then you have Malcolm yeah. McDowell, who's, you know, a very, very good actor who actually it's is breaking down eyes. and tears in his eyes. And then, uh, you know, after he gets rid of him, even he, he's still, kind of upset because he's upset that you know this vision of a future that he had never came to be and then they sort of imply that he took this vision of a future to go back and this was how he predicted things like global war and how he predicted Mm -hmm. things because he actually went to the future and literally saw them so they kind of imply that a little bit but the little speech that he gets where he was just like obviously i need to just dismantle this machine because until we've mastered ourselves we have no proper use for time and then he looks back and he's like i guess i have all these books to write whatever they are (laughs) fiction i hope (laughs) such Uh, a good line and then and then he gets this really cheesy line that he sells which is every age is the same it's only love that makes any of them bearable i love that i love that and you can just tell that he absolutely believes it yeah and i was trying to figure out like why I mean, you know, he's Malcolm McDowell. I probably didn't need necessarily a why, but I was trying to figure out, like, these are really believable performances and really emotional performances by the end. And the material is a a little cheesy that I didn't know that it necessarily called for it. And I went and looked it Mm up. And Malcolm McDowell and Mary Steenberger fell in love making this movie. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. Uh, Oh, I love that. They were they, totally hooking up. You can tell. Yeah, no, they, they they met each other. They had not met each other intentionally. Nicholas Meyer yes. um, told them that they were not allowed to meet. And then so their first time they met each other was on set filming together. So their first scenes together, they were actually meeting each other for the first time. And by the end of this film, they were basically in love and they uh, married each other within like six months of production or something like that. Wow. Well, that, yeah. dude, that, that makes this movie even better. <laughs> I got to yeah. say. It that, really adds something. It does. And it, I, I, I watched an interview with Malcolm McDowell and he said that this will only be, always be my most two beautiful children outfit. Just so sweet. Okay. So, he, he, sorry, uh, you cut out there briefly. What, what was oh, it that sorry. he said? Uh, he said that Time of Time will only be my most favorite movie because I got two beautiful children out of it. Oh, that is so sweet! <laughs> wow, this is, this is the most romantic film I've ever watched. Now this is <laughs> this is incredible. I gotta say that that Jack ending the Ripper, line, love. Yeah, exactly. I got it. That ending line. Um, although I see what you mean about some of the the cheese, I think it's just so genuine and and what we've been shown throughout this film. I, I it it feels fitting. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, opinion. especially for a character who has had his 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 vision of the world and of a future just so thoroughly disrupted. 
Right. He was just like, he was like, if this is what the future looks like, I am going to go back and I am going to pay attention to the love in my life first yeah, over yeah. Uh, imagining <laughs> organizing a better society because yeah. I don't know <laughs> if it's possible, <laughs> but I, uh, yeah, I love, I love that. Um, I had no idea about the, the actual romance or anything like that. I, I had no idea that they got married and that's, uh, I don't, yeah, yeah. That, that really brings it to the top for me. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so, so for me, I'm going to say this, this gets, I think, a like a, a solid, uh, for, um, from, from me, because I, I think that it's just there, you know, there, there is definitely, um, like, you know, this is a little bit sweeter and more writerly than stuff that I would normally like. I usually tend to adhere more to, you know, sort of like the, the, the style of directing or the, the, the insanity of some of the Mm -hmm. visuals. And this doesn't have that necessarily, but like, I ended up finding myself intrigued uh, by plot, which in which is something that like is never happens. Normally, something that yeah. that it intrigues me too much. And then also mm-hmm. Nicholas Meyer, you know, he wrote some solid characters and he got some really great performances out of basically all the major players in this film. And he has a really clever premise that all these characters get to maneuver through. That even when the you know there's not a huge chance for the visuals to go, um, you know, wild, there is something just intrinsically visually. Um, interesting about watching a Victorian era Malcolm McDowell walk around, you know, <laughs> a, a Dirty Harry film for a little while, yeah, um, and then having Jack the Ripper be the villain of that situation, and and having a sort of um, sort of uh, cat and mouse style um, thriller aspect in that way, which he definitely seems to have pulled from um, his writing of of Sherlock Holmes stories. Uh, I mean, at one point they literally call Malcolm McDowell yeah. Sherlock Holmes, or he he calls right. himself Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, and they're like, "Come I, on, man!" I think it's the Ripper. I think he says, "You're a regular Sherlock Holmes" when yeah. he finds him for the first time. Um, right, but then he goes. Then he goes to the police station, and he oh, says yeah. that my name is Sherlock <laughs> Which is Holmes. Crazy! I'm just like. You cannot report a crab and call yourself Sherlock Holmes. You're not helping anyone, <laughs> especially yourself. Yeah, uh, I also love. Uh, I'm. A, I'm also gonna give it a four out of five, especially after you told you. You just said the, uh, the 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 real life romance because it just brings this in film romance to a whole new level, in my opinion. Um, and I also love uh, the scene where he's in jail. And he plays, once again, like Malcolm plays him just so honestly and they write him so honestly that it shows like this, this fade while he's in jail being interrogated. And he just is constantly saying, I told you, I'm H.G. Wells. I traveled here from 1893. (laughs) And he he just, he won't let up and, and just all he he would have to do is maybe switch his story. And I thought that's what was going to happen. Like he'd have that kind of cliche moment where he, he lies to the cop to make him believe him or something, but he just sticks with his time travel. Traveling story throughout the he's, whole he, thing. He, he's too honest, man. Yeah, he's so earnest and pure. He's like I, I too love pure it. for 1970s San Francisco. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I for love sure. and I and I love it. So uh, yeah, four out of five. Um, had a blast with this one, and uh, yeah, cool. But for you, Fu. Um, wait, do I get to get a score? Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, oh, you get okay. if you want. Because um, we, and and, yeah. and we, include, we include your rating as like a part of um, where it lands on our overall ranked list. Yeah. <laughs> I would I would give it um, a four out of five too. I mean, children were born because of this movie. So. <laughs> <laughs> well <good>. said, well said. <laughs> and also um, another thing that I really like is how it captures San Francisco. Because it's a very good San Francisco movie. It's almost like you take a tour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they even Tourist start to do spot, like uh, 
landscape or uh, uh, spots like they I think there's a whole sequence where she they talk about like the Golden Gate Bridge and stuff like that yeah so. and the second one they were having lunch at the Equinox rotating restaurant and you can right, have like a right. skyline view of San Francisco which is beautiful I think that's what makes it so impressive for a directorial debut as well because it's difficult to do location shooting but I think he did it really well the way he think on the different scenes together from location to like location it's very smooth yeah that's yeah absolutely absolutely all right well i think that will wrap it up for time after time here we are going to be right back and we are going to be talking about murder by decree in the annals of crime who is jack the ripper A story that at last reveals the identity of history's most elusive murderer. A stunning cast brought together with an astonishing story. One of the great screen entertainments in the classic tradition. Murder by Decree. All right, we are back and we are talking Murder by Decree, the 1979 British-Canadian uh, mystery detective thriller film directed by Bob Clark, who we have talked about previously on this show. Oh yeah. We have done uh black Christmas, um, which Jamie and I, um, obviously really, really enjoyed. We also got to see it on the big screen not too long ago. Yeah, that was, was unreal. It, was it last Christmas. I think so. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I miss, I miss the theater, man. Oh, <laughs> I, miss it so much. I miss it so yeah. much, man. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to cry we over were, here. We're pretty addicted. I mean, like it, it, it helps that I like worked at a theater and I would always just get Jamie into oh, whatever we were doing. The best. Uh, the best. But yeah, it's really it was... cheap to go to movies in Paris. Like I got this unlimited movie card that's like 17 euros. For yeah, I've, I've heard that that, that exists, but. Uh, it's crazy. Wow. And it's a partnership between the multiplays and the art cinemas. So you can basically see both Avengers and I get Black Christmas if you want to. Amazing. Oh, that's well, hopefully Thank something you. like that comes to Canada at some point because I would uh, I would very much appreciate that. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we unfortunately had to miss some 35 millimeter screenings that would have been happening here because they're they're pretty hard to get here. Some but good I, ones I helped too. organize oh. them, and we were going to do History of Violence on 35. Oh. I was really excited oh. about. We were going to talk about it on the show. Either way, let's talk about uh, murder by decree. <laughs> Stop being here. so sad about current <laughs> yeah. circumstances. Oh. <laughs> uh, which is directed by Bob Clark, who obviously did uh, later in his life he did he did eighties comedy films such as A Christmas Story and uh, Porky's, believe it or not. But in the in in the seventies, uh, in nineteen seventy four in particular, he did Black Christmas, which is one of the sort of like earliest North American slashers, if not the earliest. I think the only one earlier that I can think of is A Bay of Blood, which is not North American. That's um, yeah. Italian. Uh, it's Mario Bava, I think. So uh, he he basically helped. Uh, establish um, the North American slasher genre with the Canadian horror classic Black Christmas. But then, um, as uh, Fung mentioned at the top of the show, he also did uh, Death Dream, or Dead of Night, in 1974, which is also a little bit of a uh, serial killer film, but um, of a Vietnam soldier who is sort of um, traumatized um, by the war, comes home, and uh, maybe starts killing people. And it deals with the psychological and familial fallout of um you know sort of like the war and also puts it into a horror context 
So this is sort of like the headspace that Bob Clark was in, which when he got handed murder by decree, which is interesting um, because he does somehow funnel a little bit of that into murder by decree, despite the fact that uh, it's not totally certain how much the writing calls for that style to be applied. The writing is a little bit more uh, traditional, despite the fact that it does incorporate a larger sort of corruption conspiracy into Sherlock Holmes rather than, you know, sort of like an individual psycho, which is something that's notable. Um, But early on in Murder by Decree, I was like uh, pretty blown away by how like immediately um, more sort of like serious and scary it was. Yeah, the atmosphere Uh, and mood is is very, yeah, very much so. Even though I like the uh, the opening shot of like the overlooking the entire city, um, and it yeah. has this kind of like there's a darkness in the city, but within the skyline you can kind of see some like oranges and stuff. So it felt yeah. almost like hauntingly beautiful in a way. And then as he you know kind of descends into the city, it gets foggier and dirtier and darker and all that. And I thought that was that was pretty pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And, and it stars Christopher Plummer obviously as uh, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, mostly, I guess, because this is a Canadian production and Christopher Plummer, obviously a pretty well-known Canadian actor. Oh yeah. Um, so I have a feeling that, uh, that that's why Christopher Plummer is, is Sherlock Holmes here. And then it also has though, James Mason as Dr. Watson, which is insane. Cause Jamie, I don't know if you've seen much of James Mason, but like, I'm familiar from him as he's the lead in the 1950s, like stars born. Oh, okay. Um, I've and only he's seen also him in uh, I've seen him in North by Northwest. Yeah. But, okay. Uh, yeah. Well, he he gives probably one of the most uh, crazy performances as sort of like the uh, the, the toxic dad in Nicholas Ray's than life. Bigger Than Life. Yes. So good. Um, and uh, he's he's sort of like the 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 working dad who sort of like gets addicted to some sort of like uh pills and ends up becoming like sort of like uh an, an overall symbol of like the the abusive family unit in that kind of way and he goes really mm. off the rails wow um mm-hmm. in in that film and i've he's so I've laid seen back really, in this one yeah and i've seen some really intense performances from from him just in general so seeing him yeah. sort of in in his i mean obviously those films were from the 1950s that was sort of like his his peak when he was in a star is born bigger than life and North by Northwest yeah, within like four years of each other. So he's going from um, that to like, you squashed my pee homes. Oh my God. I, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> like, after I watched more about the I keep saying that. Yeah. <laughs> people, and they're just like, I don't know what to say, but it's just like, it's the best scene. It's almost the best scene in the movie. Oh, it's, yeah, and, it's and, one of my and, favorites. And, and, uh, and I, to- I totally understand, man. Like he, he has, a, <laughs> he has that fixation where he needs to feel it crush. Yeah, he's got to pop that pee, man. <laughs> yeah. An interesting note too about um, his performance, though, is that he only agreed to be uh, Watson if uh, Watson was a serious character, mm. because oh, Watson okay. typically in a lot of Sherlock yeah, Holmes yeah. stories is kind of he can sometimes be more of like a bumbling sidekick. Oh, so that, so like, that Holmes, will not be me. Is that so that Holmes seems like the the smartest in the room all the time? That kind of thing. Uh, sometimes, yeah. I mean, there's obviously been so many different variations on these characters. There's so many different versions that people have done. But like, True. Yeah. Ty- typically, um, at least he was scared that as being the home sidekick, that he was going to be kind of treated as like the 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 butt of the joke. Um, right. 
So that he, meant that they kinda, had to like go into the writing and like he he himself rewrote multiple scenes apparently with Watson yeah. so that including uh, the pee scene. Oh, uh, okay, <laughs> nice. Yeah, because it seems instead he, he tries to almost be like someone trying to ground Holmes because Holmes always seems to be getting like overly excited or focused on something that might be even a detriment to his health or something like that. And it seems like well, Watson see, is always that, trying to reel him back a little bit. And, and that's yeah. interesting because that's what eventually, obviously, uh, Robert Daddy Jr. and Jude Law would do with their renditions of the characters. Right. But what, but what's really interesting is that Christopher Plummer, I guess, also didn't want to be like super self-destructive or anything like that yeah. either. So they, they didn't really include that part of it either. So then you get in this well, weird relationship where you're kind of like, neither of them is really like particularly goofy or uh, like not well-adjusted. They're both kind of just like friends and one of yeah. them is like a tiny bit smarter yeah. than the other one. Well, that was something that I found interesting was because at first I thought, and I'm trying to find the line here, but there was this line that, that hinted to me that it was going to turn into one of those things like, um, yeah, for some re- I think it's the French connection where it's like the, the detective gets so obsessed with the case that it, you know, ends up being violent on his part or something like that. And right. It almost le- like there's dialogue that's kind of leading to that, but then it just doesn't ever really get there. It just kind of goes into the typical detective thing, which I still en- thoroughly enjoyed. Um, I just was I was expecting, I guess, anticipating something a little a little darker when it came to the character. Yeah, I would I would say some of the character writing is like a little bit um, not the most interesting I've seen of of Holmes. And it, it, it doesn't help that obviously there's like I mean, they've been making Sherlock Holmes movies since what, like the 1930s? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, there's so many great Sherlock Sherlock Holmes uh, dynamics. And uh, so this one doesn't have one of the more particularly interesting ones, even though the the overall plot using Sherlock Holmes hunting Jack the Ripper is still sort of neat. Although from what oh, I understand, yeah. this, is, this is also a remake of a Sherlock Holmes story that already did that uh, called A Study yeah. in Terror, I think yeah. was the name. Oh, okay. There was a, yeah, a, a book and a movie made out of that in the 60s. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're loosely remaking that. But um, I so do- what this film mostly has going for it is that Bob Clark is tackling that story. I was going to say Clark does have a sense of atmosphere. He does have a sense of really using the period look and vibe and using like that, that, that dark mist and the cobblestone and the low lighting and putting his really creepy POV images into it. And even even, like these really tight fractured compositions of like eyes that get like lit up. And I was just going to say, even like the strangling uh, at the beginning is really intense. Yeah. And the wide angle images of it. I was just going to say, like we were talking about the black Christmas shots and we already discussed the, the POV breathing shot, but that one, uh, uh, that you just said, um, the uh, uh, the eyes. There's a lot of close-ups with like, uh, yeah, and, and it seems like the whoever one of the rippers are because it turns out to be kind of like a you know mass conspiracy kind of thing. But it's uh, it, he has almost like a like a black eye, you know, like it's very yeah. dark. It's unnatural. It's not a human like kind of evil. thing. And they do that kind of similarly in Black Christmas as well. So that was cool to for him to kind of apply that in this this more old school horror way. Yeah, and 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 the style largely reminds me of because because again it's it's set in sort of like this this Victorian period and because um you know Sherlock Holmes himself has had a lot of movies um prior uh dating all the way back to the 30s and 40s all the way up until the 60s 
Um, this reminded me a lot, actually, of Hammer Horror. Now, Jamie, we've talked mm. about Hammer Horror before on the show. We did uh, Captain Kronos. Okay, that's yeah. kind of the vibe I got here, which was again, Hammer Horror was when they came back in the seventies and tried to like kind of like revive a lot of these very classical stories, but with sort of like modern filmmaking techniques. Yeah. So like these are very handsome sets, very theatrical style performances, and stuff that kind of places you in an older context. Yeah. Which actually makes it more grim and shocking when the more you know seventies era. Um, filmmaking techniques come out that Bob Clark would be deploy- deploying here. So I think yeah, that absolutely. that part really works. Um, especially yeah, the to- mood and atmosphere is unreal. I really loved that aspect yeah. of the film. Yeah, um, but but largely the film, uh, as is as is always typical of a Sherlock Holmes story, uh, it's it it's following Sherlock Holmes as he descends down a series of witnesses and hunts down evidence and pulls. Uh, tugs at strings until the whole thing kind of the whole picture becomes clear yeah um and uh as as he is pursuing jack the ripper which gives which gives the film a sort of interesting like um imagery to it just because he's technically again jack the ripper has gone in a lot of ways from being like this literal historical um figure to being a little bit more of like a uh, symbolic or folkloric almost that's something, uh, character. That's something I kind of wanted to discuss briefly was just like the way that people use Jack the Ripper compared to other serial killers in history. It's almost as if like Jack has a full, like we can do whatever we want with him and it's not insulting or offensive. You know what I mean? But I don't, I don't know if you yeah. could do a time traveling thing with Jeffrey Dahmer. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I don't know if that would be the same vibe. <laughs> So I, yeah, find, it's, I it's, find that interesting. It's a it's a classic too soon uh, thing, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Too many people who too many people who actually remember yeah. the the situation. Maybe maybe, maybe in fifty years we can make a, a time exactly. traveling Jeffrey Dahmer horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, see we'll see how it goes. Um, but it but it does lead to an interesting dynamic where Sherlock Holmes, obviously a very logical, grounded person, is dealing with a scenario that seems sort of like larger than life in that way. Like he seems like a horror movie character. Yeah. Um, which is very, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily the kind of Michael Myers, character. Jason Voorhees. Yeah. It's, it's an, yeah. It's not the kind of character that, you know, Sherlock Holmes would typically pursue, um, which is why it gets interest gets more interesting as they realize that actually pe- they were abusing this very idea of Jack the Ripper as a um, symbol of, of, of fear in general. Um, so like that, that part of the writing I found sort of interesting, um, that like, you know, people might actually, you know, it's actually maybe your government who was doing this killing. Um, and instead they might try to fool you by making it seem like it's this very superstitious, um, evil personified, uh, style monster who's out there when really, what is being done here is just sort of like a typical kind of government cover-up. Yeah, there's um, a structure to it. Yeah, yeah I think and, that and, the the conspiracy thing is very interesting for me for the same reason because if you like take away the Sherlock Holmes and the Jack the Ripper thing, it's almost like on the president man in a way. You sort of Sherlock yes. Holmes being like the anti-hero, sort of like unmasking this big conspiracy, and it's sort of hard to speak to this whole thing about the atmosphere of the seventies being about distrust and paranoia. Yeah. So it feels it feels old school in some way, but it 
temporary in other ways. For sure. Yeah, no, 100%. I think that that is absolutely like what, what makes this film um, stand, stand out for me because like as you go through sort of like these, these classical situations where, you know, like Sherlock Holmes is um, meeting with someone who gives him like a, a little clue and then he's trying to figure out how it all fits in together and, and uh, he thinks for most of this film that he is pursuing, you know, like a, uh, a, a serial killer who is just hunting these particular women and then he starts realizing slowly as the clues accumulate that he is and actually die. uncovering... Sorry? I was going to say, it seems like also every time someone gives him a clue, that person is instantly killed the next scene. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, as, as typical of uh, any other conspiracy thriller that right. you see. It, uh, yeah. Definitely, uh, definitely there is a uh, danger quality that keeps getting ramped up as as he's pursuing these clues, and then mm-hmm. which just makes him more suspicious. Right, exactly. Because <laughs> he's like, I thought I was just hunting like this one serial killer. Yeah, it's like, guy. is this one guy? <laughs> like, how's he doing this? <laughs> Um, but, but I, I do like, um, Mason and, and Plummer in the roles, um, because even though their, their characters aren't written as interesting as, you know, they, they, they could be, both of them do play it like very straight in a way yeah. that makes them finding yeah. themselves in odd situations. And I do believe engaging. their relationship, like when I'm, when we're with them, I mm-hmm. do feel like they have a past and, uh, you know, they'll bring things up and it, it feels genuine. Um, yeah. I guess it's just like the the characters themselves, like the actual portfolio of that character or the uh, the profile. It's 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 not as interesting, but the way that they portray them is still really well done and just very classical. You know, maybe that's where it is. It's we're more used to the the weird and strange performances that come on this show, that kind of thing. No, yeah, I but think they, there's they, the domesticity in their relationship, mm-hmm. which is interesting because you see, oh yeah, you see, there's a scene when Holmes like waking up wasn't. And just like, oh, you gotta wake <laughs> up. And it, it's a very tidal sort of snippet yeah. of what their domestic life is like because presumably they spend most of the time not solving murder and just living together. And you have these gleams of how they sort of cohabit, um, yeah. which really humanize Holmes because I think Plummer play him like a normal human being. He's, yeah. very, he's very gentle. He cries at one point, um, which is something you don't really see home being portrayed as yeah usually he's portrayed yeah, no, he, kind of emotionless right yeah yeah and he seems like he cares a lot actually that that's what yeah. seems to driving him is that he's just he's he's very upset about the loss of life just in general and that's yeah. what keeps like pushing him to like prevent yeah. it and then as he's trying to prevent it it seems to be following him and then he's like okay what the hell's going on <laughs> right <laughs> so yeah even though the overall um like because this is a this is actually a little bit longer than um, uh, time after time. This is almost like a full two hour movie. So yeah. because of that, there are there are some the, the structure of the film is like a little bit slower. It's a little bit more ponderous. It's obviously not as like fast moving and charming as something like time after time. Yeah, it's really trying uh, to set you into the mystery of it all rather than mm-hmm. just like the adventure. Yeah. Yeah. So so at, at times it can be a little more dry, but I do think that the performances are like they're they're good enough that they carry you through a lot of the the mysterious elements and putting again this sort of classical style into a modern paranoia conspiracy context d- 
does intrigue me enough that I'm sitting there kind of like curious where this is going. Um, And as always with a Sherlock Holmes story, he has to have that big, I figured it out. I have to explain it to Mm -hmm. you at the end. And I do think that like when he gets that moment in this, after he's like, you know, found out that there is this conspiracy involving the murdering of prostitutes, um, not because Jack the Ripper uh, is necessarily particularly a a serial killer who is just uh, after these marginalized women in the streets because they're available. Uh, it turns out that there's actually a more nefarious purpose behind this and it involves government officials, you know, like getting them pregnant and being scandalized and not wanting that information to get out. And then anyone who has that information uh, maybe needs to get bumped off. Yeah. Um, so when, when you, when you throw that in, it's, it's such a modern sort of thing to be terrified of that I found it really engaging watching like Christopher Plummer's very classical style actor like wrestle with that and he delivers a very impassioned um, sort of um, speech when he does um, expose that uh, in the end like directly to them which is very brave I I was honestly quite shocked that this movie didn't end with them like hanging Sherlock Holmes yeah for real (laughs) (laughs) yeah they're just kind of like all right you figured it out but no one's gonna believe you so it's cool (laughs) bye (laughs) yeah Uh, something I also really like is the way that they do some of the imagery with the kind of this the secret nature of of the Masons like uh, the one scene where Sherlock does the the secret handshake and then when yeah. he reveals his ring he does like that flip to that he's wearing a ring that has like the secret compartment that shows the actual symbol of the Mason the Masonic temple or whatever and things mm-hmm. like that I thought were really cool I always I always just dig you know the conspiracy theory and the you know these underground societies and stuff like that so that I that I found pretty compelling um I just I, I guess overall it's just it felt kind of like your uh intriguing but somewhat typical mystery story um whereas yeah i was i was i was also a little surprised that the horror element didn't pop up quite as much as it does Um, because because he he establishes that mood so early and then he doesn't really return even there's even a scene where like he almost gets run over by like a hooded figure in a black carriage and it's not even shot like in the same way that he shot the previous stuff like it's it's like full bright yeah, during the day, I would say like the first half hour is really where he hones in on the horror, and then it turns into mystery pretty much from which, there. Which, which honestly could serve the story because the whole point, again, as I mentioned, is that there is like this horror imagery being weaponized that's scaring everyone, and really what he's doing in the overall story is demystifying it and showing you that it actually isn't this super scary, creepy thing. It would, it's actually just this really mundane government figures who are inventing him to make you scared of him um and to cover up what they're actually doing so like maybe that actually does translate to what the film is about yeah. there's an argument to be made there um but i definitely was hoping for a little bit more of the really creepy horror atmosphere that bob clark is really good at yeah um, which which he sort of abandons uh very early in the film yeah, yeah. it does make me wonder if it's because like when you think of a sherlock holmes or a kind of murder mystery movie people usually think it's and, and comfortable and I wonder if he struggled with the different sort of tones to set for the film while he's making it That's yeah true. I could see sort that of because, sure. because I feel like if someone goes to see a short home movie and it's just straight out scary from beginning to end they would just be confused <laughs> <laughs> that's true That uh, it might have been yeah it might have been just a, a matter of him trying to balance it and and 
maybe it's just even what we prefer. You know, we we at this show mm-hmm. obviously love a little bit of the a more of the grit and the horror aspect, and to to just see the hints of it. I I, I was hoping to get that throughout it, but I well, because the the openings the opening sequence in particular scary. is so scary. Oh yeah. <laughs> It's fantastic, uh, and then the, 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 the rest of the movie isn't really that scary after that scene. They even have uh, this there's like nothing that reaches that high. They even have this almost uh, dreamlike sequence where it's 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 like the the buggy comes up very slowly out of the yeah. fog and darkness, and then a body just is is thrown out of the carriage, mm. and it's all bloody and all that stuff. And like, there's yeah. really good elements there. Um, it's just for me, it just there wasn't quite enough uh, <laughs> to bring it over that top. But I will I, I will say I, I did like the part where he does walk. In on like the massacre scenario where they're killing the oh, yeah. that he was trying to protect. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, and then they try they try to light him on fire, uh, and then he realizes that maybe like the cops and everyone are in on it. Uh, but then the, you get this really awesome thing where like that's kind of a creepy shot, and the reason it doesn't quite work as much as horror is because right after it's like Sherlock, it's Christopher Plummer running through the streets chasing after a guy with like a cane and a top hat and a, and a cape. <laughs> Right, uh, and, and you're kind of like it's just it, it's just silly enough that the tone can't quite uh, you know like merge those two things together, which again may be partially the point because again this whole film is about Sherlock Holmes demystifying this the this yeah. thing as like not actually as supernatural and that's, horrifying as it really is. That's true, and I kind of do like that idea where it's like you know it's just expressing how Holmes sees it because at first it is horrifying, and then just as we get more answers, obviously it, it he's literally just, just chasing dudes in top hats, right? Exactly, <laughs> and and in that regard, I think that is pretty smart filmmaking. I just I guess I didn't uh, I didn't I didn't feel it as much. That's really all it is. No, well, and I mean, there, there's literally a fist fight scene. Uh, yeah. at one point which, yes. which I mean like Plummer definitely looking younger here because Plummer is like still around still acting today still still doing some good work yeah um, oh yeah but uh, he was still like at, at least 50 when he made this movie so it's not like the <laughs> most it's kind of, it, it's kind of funny to watch him fight the dude uh, in, in the top hat who gets like I guess I guess he gets strangled in a fishnet yes is what in, happens in at the, the end fishnet of Oh yeah, yeah I think the funniest moment for me though is when Donner Donner Sutherland appear for the first time Oh yeah, so that was hilarious to me. Because again, this is Canadian. Because the way it sets it up is like, oh, we're gonna go to this psychic who may know something, and then there's like this very mysterious music, and Plumber was like, oh, tell me what you know, and then Donald Sutherland turned around <laughs> and he has like a squirrel on his face, like, <laughs> the biggest mustache ever seen on a man. Yeah, he's like, I've seen him in my dreams. <laughs> Just like, the funniest thing ever. Yeah, and he has this like really blank expression in all his scenes and stuff because I guess he's like clairvoyant or some something like that. Yeah, he's like a psychic, and yeah. I don't know why he's in this movie because he's in it for like five minutes. Yeah, he, he he's he's in the movie because they probably shot it in Toronto, and Donald Sutherland is a local Canadian actor, so that's, <laughs> like, that's probably near. <laughs> got nothing to do this afternoon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh my god, yeah. I can take that, Jack the Ripper. Very possible, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think I think that like overall, maybe pivoting towards um, reductive rating round um, on on this one. This one, um, this one gets the high three for me. I think yeah. I liked it a, a tiny bit less than I did time time after time, and I think partially it's just because time after time is so engaging front to back because it's such like partially yeah. partially a lark, and because it crosses yeah. so many genres, which is maybe not the most fair comparison, honestly. 
because Murder by Decree isn't trying to be that film. It's trying to be slower. It's trying to be a little bit more ponderous and it's trying to be about, you know, exposing a, you know, your paranoia and your fear as something that was uh, fabricated. Um, this, this idea that Jack the Ripper uh, as sort of like a myth um, that is killing these lower class prostitutes um, when, when really he was invented as a figure to create sort of like obedience um, and to terrify the public and to instate a political cover up. So like that idea is a much more sobering idea. It, you can't really, you can't really have a lark doing that. I feel like you can't, you can't really have <laughs> yeah. like the, the, um, you know, the momentum and pacing of something as, as time after time that just moves so quickly um, because you really do need to experience you know, a little bit of the fear, you need to experience some of the terror, and then you need to get this slow feeling of of Sherlock Holmes just very slowly pulling at threads. And then right. as they accumulate, sort of coming to this realization. So because I recognize that that's like what the film is doing, um, even though, you know, I could have used a little bit more uh, interesting maybe character work out of the Holmes and Watson character to maybe accentuate that, I think that's what would have taken it to the next level for me yeah. if there was just more of a... Um, even if there was just more of a psychological consideration for Holmes being so terrified and maybe dealing with something that's so like illogical as like, you know, being afraid of something like uh, supernatural in that way, even if there was mm -hmm. more wrestling with that, I think that would have done it, but still worth it to hear Christopher Plummer deliver these, these awesome lines. Like, for example, I wrote a couple of them down. These are nice. just things I wanted to hit before I was done, but when people are frightened, they turn to God. And when they have no help from him, they look to the devil. <laughs> That's good. Thanks, Christopher Plummer. Uh, also, uh, there's, there's another way that he uh, <laughs> surmises the situation of unmasking sort of like this government cover-up where uh, in his big speech, he says, you create allegiance above your sworn allegiance to protect humanity. You shall not care for them or acknowledge their pain. There lies the madness. Uh, just talking about how a government could so easily dispose of its own people as if they weren't people. Yeah. Um, and like that is much scarier to him than mm -hmm. that is more, that is more actual madness than a serial murderer on the streets. <laughs> yeah. Um, which again is just clarifying the, the idea that we've been talking about here. And then last but not least the best line in the whole goddamn movie, which is I, I, I wish honestly this was the mood of the movie, but he says we've unmasked madmen Watson wielding scepters, reason run riot justice howling at the moon. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's such a good line. And he delivers yeah, it awesomely too. Yeah. He's very yeah. uh this like almost like classical performance. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um yeah, I'm also gonna give it a three out of five. Uh it almost got there, honestly. I just felt like it would have helped to lean into the horror aspects uh throughout the film rather than just like the first thirty minutes. Now, once again, I do get that it might be that he is kind of you know, going into the mystery as it goes, because, you know, as he unravels that mystery, the horror is kind of uh, disappearing. And so I do I do get that. Uh, but what I think would have made up for it is what I was speaking on um, earlier, which was this idea where Sherlock was kind of, I don't know, 
getting too deep into the into the case, like I found one of the lines that I had as an example. Uh, he says this with like enthusiasm, which is, uh, "She'll be more helpful to us now than she was alive." And uh, nice. and so <laughs> right, and he says that with enthusiasm before he's about to leave mm. and go out and and try to you know solve the mystery or whatever and. So when I hear those lines, I'm kind of like, okay, I I understand that he's excited because he's doing this thing, you know, this is what he does and and whatever. But there's something to be said, I think, about being very excited about someone dead (laughs) rather than alive because it's more helpful to you, right? And they never really touch on that too much. Um, And there's some other examples that I I can't quite find right now, but that was the big one. Uh, And I just, I I wish they leaned into that a little more. So... um, but Christopher Plummer and James Mason are really good together. I thought their chemistry was was good. Uh, I did kind of feel a past with them, which was which was nice. And uh, Bob Clark still has some of his awesome uh, horror elements. You know, we have the POV in the beginning, and um, some of those really cool close up eye shots are really are really effective. So so yeah, uh, probably a high three. Um, yeah. And for you, Fum. Um, can I do three and a half? Is I think. Oh yeah. I yeah. I um yeah. I really appreciate the sets. I gotta say, because I think the sets are very yeah effective and um capture. Because I was reading about how so most of the murders in history when Jack the Ripper did it, it happened in Whitechapel, and the reason he could do it there because they don't really have a lot of gas lighting around in that area because it's a poor area. Right. And it's, mm. I think the film really captured that because you don't really see light anywhere. It's just fog and mist. And there's one review that came out at the time calling the film looking almost like a black and white film. Because mm. when you look at the night scene, there's no color. It's just like this gray on right. through and through. Yeah. And I really appreciate that. And I think the like what you said, like the performances... And we haven't really talked about Genevieve Boujold, but I think she's also excellent in this because mm. on the scene, it's almost like she's in a different movie <laughs> <laughs> from everyone else because she just gives like this very straightforward performance of the woman being locked up in an asylum. Yeah, and yeah. She, she's like the agent that brought out the human side of Sherlock Holmes that we don't usually see in other films. And I really appreciate that as well. So I think it's um yeah because that's pretty... one of his uh, more emotional scenes, right? So, yeah, yeah. He was like crying. Yeah, and then on the train back, he was you can see him being in on go- in pain for this woman. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and that's sort of like a highlight for. Me. So I think three and a half. Cool. Yeah. No. Totally fair. Yeah. yeah. And, and and good thing that you mentioned her too because I I forgot to to bring her up. But she uh, is good. I, Very good. I, I, She's I, so good. She, She's very good in the scene that that she does, and also, um, she she got cast I think because of uh, her lead role in uh, Brian De Palma's Obsession, which would have came out just mm-hmm. like cool. two or three years earlier, which is which is a really excellent. Um, obviously, De Palma being a bit of a, a, a Hitchcock Vertigo situation where she plays two different characters, and she's she's awesome in that. Um, yeah. And I, I, I didn't realize where I recognized her from uh, until I like looked at her filmography, and I was like, ah, oh, of course, that's um, awesome. Yeah. But either way, she's she's a very good actress, and she yeah she gets one of the more heartbreaking scenes in this film, which is the scene I think where Plummer realizes that this is so much worse than a serial killer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where he was just like, it, here here are people yeah. conspiring to like just completely abuse this woman and keep her locked up, and and all she's trying to do is protect her child. Right. And something about her style of acting feels 
quote unquote modern compared mm-hmm. to what Plummer and Mason are doing in the film, and everyone else right. like John Giggle, this is all sort of like from this other thing, and Johnny Vieve Bujou, this is sort of very modern thing because she doesn't like her face is not like super expressive. No, but the yeah. way that yeah, it just sort of she's in sort of trauma and blank blankness, yeah. and then yeah, the it definitely she, doesn't doesn't feel like a writerly yeah. Victorian you know detective novel. All right. Well, I think that that will wrap it up for uh, Murder by Decree. Uh, that'll wrap it up for this week's episode. That was, uh, as well as Murder by Decree, that was Time After Time, both films from 1979. Both detective stories around Jack the Ripper. Yeah, awesome. They came out in the same year, which is just an insane coincidence or something. <laughs> yeah, that's so, um, so I mean, strange. There were a lot of serial killers like hanging around <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, during that time. And for it's just so interesting. It's just so interesting that both would be inspired to do like uh, Sherlock Holmes styled uh, Jack the Ripper stories in and, the same year. And to have um, in time after time, have Jack the Ripper call HG Wells, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty interesting <laughs> coincidence there too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, Foon, thanks so much for uh, coming on and bringing these films with you. Uh, if you've got anything to plug, this is the place where we usually have you do it. Yeah. Oh, I have not. Even 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 just a Twitter if you want people to follow oh, your right. Um my Twitter oh no, it's it's the silliest handle. It's called small and artless. So <laughs> it's, it's actually a quote from Second City, so which is make me seem less cool. Uh I just use my Twitter to talk about old films that I watch and then mm. point you to where they're streaming. So if you're interested in old movies, you should follow me. Cool. Um that's it. <laughs> Absolutely. No, thank, thanks so much for coming on. I can recommend following thanks for having me. for sure. I've uh, been following her writing for, for quite some time, so I can recommend it. Um, but for uh, our listeners, we're going to be back in one week's time with a bonus episode where we're going to be talking about uh, uh, Stuart Gordon, because Stuart Hell Gordon yeah. recently passed away and uh we previously only done really like one episode on on Stuart Gordon really early on in the show where we had Barbara Crampton on to talk about Reanimator and From Beyond. Um but we have decided that we, you know, we owed Stuart Gordon uh, another episode because we never kind of got around to doing more of him before he passed away. Uh, so we are going to be talking about his major horror follow-ups uh, to Reanimator and From Beyond. His two most popular uh, horror films that weren't those were uh, a film from 1987 called Dolls. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is mm. one of the uh, earliest uh, situations of of doll horror which would become sort of things like child's play it would go into small soldiers it would go into uh all kinds of sort of like a cutesy small little figurines that turn murderous uh, <laughs> uh i believe it actually is the earliest film of that and also puppet master and all kinds of stuff there oh, is yeah. a weird doll horror subgenre that exists yeah um, people don't like and, them <laughs> and, and, and and Stuart gordon kind of got there first um and uh, we're going to be pairing it with his other one, a really, really nasty direct-to-video little horror movie that he did called Castle Freak. Oh, my God. Uh, which is a traumatizingly disgusting little uh, cheap horror movie that he so made good, in a castle too. because his friend owned a castle. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. We got a castle. Um, we're making a movie. Yeah, so he basically takes like a Quasimodo story and turns it into... Like basically, like a full out uh, monster creature feature with really intense violence and sexual violence in it. Uh, so, yeah. 
Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> We're going to be going down the rabbit hole of non-reanimator, non-from-beyond Stuart Gordon horror. Plus, um, we get which, more uh, Crampton and more Combs, which I love. <laughs> yes. So that's what we're going to be talking about on next week's bonus episode. Again, patreon.com slash Cezoids podcast if you would like uh, to hear that one. Um, But after that, we are going to have a special guest on. And I haven't seen either of these movies, but I think broadly the double feature has something to do with um, sort of uh, New York grit. uh, Cool. Crime movies. Love it. Uh, but but they seem particularly underrated because we're going to be talking mm. about one called uh, Nighthawks. From, <laughs> oh, I love uh, it. Yeah, <laughs> already love it. They just need yeah, code so, name first, though. They need code exactly. name. Nighthawks. But we have we have Nighthawks, which stars Sylvester Stallone yes. and Luke Hauer. So yes. I'm stoked. Oh man, uh, I'm stoked. And it's also directed by Bruce Malmuth, who would go on to direct uh, Hard to Kill. Cool. Uh, with Steven Seagal. So we're going to be talking about that and we're going to be pairing <laughs> it with a film called uh, Night of the Juggler. Nice. Uh, from 1980, oh. starring uh, James Brolin and directed by Robert Butler. Oh man, I'm stoked. That sound awesome. So we are going to be talking about some some New York crime films from 1980 and 1981. Um, and yeah, I'm pretty excited to talk about both of them, honestly. Cool. But that being said, I think that will wrap it up for this week's episode. Thanks so much, guys, for listening. And keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy.